Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Tessa Lunny's party girl, Kiki Button, poses for Pablo Picasso in a bohemian Paris that's the setting for the first of a mystery series that gently prods at serious questions, like how to be a modern woman. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Tessa talks about why she's obsessed with 1920s Paris, how her doctorate on war literature helped shake Kiki's character, and why Harry Potter saved her in the early days of motherhood. But before we talk to Tessa, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Tessa's website and books, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Tessa. Hello there, Tessa, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, it's great to be here. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Look, beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? And if there was, was there some sort of catalyst for it? There was a moment that I decided I wanted to write fiction, and that was about two years after I realised I was never going to be an actress. <laughs> I wanted to be an actress so much from when I was a very little girl, and then when I was about 21, 22, I realised that I didn't have the success that my friends who I'd been teen actors with had already had, but also it didn't suit me, it didn't suit my personality, didn't suit me intellectually. I looked at the decisions I'd made in my life and I went, none of these are pointing towards an acting life, Tessa. You have to be honest with yourself, you're not going to do this. And then a couple of years later, I um, finished university and I did in Australia, it's an honours year, which is an extra year on the end of a a three-year degree and I was surrounded by highly intelligent, passionate, eloquent book readers and I thought, these are my people. These are my people. And so I thought, well, you're going to have to, you're going to have to go with books. It was your first love and it's your true love. So maybe you can tell a story. Maybe you should start to try. Um, and so I started to try. And when I enrolled in a just a graduate diploma of creative writing and I enrolled because my boyfriend at the time was enrolling in his Bachelor of Music and I was bored and I had nothing better to do and I did about three or four classes and went, this is it, this is what I'm going to do. So hmm. that was that was the, it was like a long moment that ended in a flash of revelation. Great that you had such self-awareness at such an early age really. <laughs> well, it was sort of forced upon me because I was quite unhappy you know, trying to do this and trying to do that and it was all failing and not working and it should have worked. It worked in my mind and I just I just couldn't perform. I couldn't do anything and I tried out for drama schools and hadn't got in and and I just thought this is a series of failures, but more than that, you're not you don't even enjoy it. You're not even enjoying being up on stage. You don't want to do it. Yes. So yeah. what do you yeah. you know, yeah. why why are you pursuing this if actually you hate it? So I had to I had to 
I had to think about it. But, you know, it took a long time to think about it. I went overseas and I had, you know, affairs and I finished my degree. You know, I did a lot of, I did a lot of thinking. The self-awareness came slowly. Yes, yes. So April in Paris 1921 is the name of the book. And it's, it's kind of like we know about the Americans in Paris, but this one is an Australian in Paris. Your heroine mm-hmm. is Kiki Button. What made you mm-hmm. decide on the mystery genre and that time period? So the time period was because I have been obsessed with it for about 10 years since I read Among the Bohemians by Virginia Nicholson, who's Virginia Woolf's grand niece. Um, my mother gave me that book just as I was starting my Masters of Creative Writing and it was like a template for how to live the artistic life, how to be a writer and an artist in a world that seems to push you in the opposite direction. I read it maybe 12 times, but since her book is so meticulously researched that I, after I read that book, I'd go through her notes and start reading all the books in the back of her notes that I could find and reading more books about the period. And as I was doing my doctorate, it was like my get out of jail free card when I could pretend I was researching but not really doing any work because it's set in that interwar period. Um, Yeah, so when I decided I wanted to write another book, um, it had to be it had to be 1920s Paris because that's where I wanted to be myself (laughs) in, you know, 21st century Sydney. As for the mystery genre, I was um, I've been very slow to get into it, but now that I, I am into it, I really, I really love it. I love how it's such a tight framework but because it's a tight framework it can leave so much room for creativity and imagination and for talking about both the past and the present and the relation between the two Uh, but you have a way through you have a way that you can use all of the material from the past or all of the material from the present to be able to weave a story that says something particular because you can loop the story over the framework of the detective or the spy thriller there are certain things that need to happen yeah Mm. so it keeps it interesting but at the same time as you say you can have a lot of that very enjoyable extra detail now Kiki is the daughter of a wealthy wall baron she enlists as a nurse in world war one while on a day with relatives in England and she can't settle back into the expected life for a young woman of a certain class after the war I'm sure there were many young women who felt that way um, during that period. Tell me a little bit about the genesis, particularly for Kiki. The genesis for a lot of this book came from the research I did whilst doing my doctorate in Australian war fiction. Uh So Kiki, Kiki follows a template of many young men, many soldiers who couldn't settle back into a job, couldn't settle back into the just the sweet, banality of ordinary life some of them loved it it was exactly what they wanted and others just the adrenaline of war and they having survived and the grief of having survived but also the pleasure was just too much and they couldn't they couldn't settle and so Kiki Kiki follows that mold Um, but other than that it actually came from my reading that I wanted to hear a particular type of voice. I wanted to have a particular type of narrator, a particular type of, could have been hero or heroine, but I was always going to write a heroine who would take me on a journey and talk to me in a particular way. And I searched and I searched and often and I couldn't quite find it. And so I thought, well, Tessa, you're a writer. You're going to have to write it. 
if this is what you want. Yeah, there's probably not many. Um, well, um, there probably are memoirs of of women who who obviously um, were nurses in the war. But how how honest they would have been about their life after the war in that time is probably um, a question. Uh, mm. So a lot of it you would have had to have imagined rather than rely on memoir for. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Well, I actually, the memoirs that I read were of the artists in Montparnasse. And so those women who'd chosen the life that Kiki chose to, to live, rather than the nurses who often, if they could leave Australia or England, um, then went home and they had, a, they had a lot of other things to deal with in terms of the grieving families and grieving friends and and ordinary life. There weren't a lot who made the leap from nurse to bohemian shall we say <laughs> but I I wanted to combine the two so I decided that she would yeah that's great and and in um April in Paris there's a lot of real history I mean that's one of the real pleasures of it including uh, a cameo role for Pablo Picasso that fascinated me well he was the king he was the king of Montparnasse he was the king of the artists in Paris so I thought well well, why not? She's just going to have to meet him. This is the kind of this is the kind of book that I wanted to read. I'd read so many histories, and it felt like looking through a window at a party, and I couldn't come in. And I'm like, I want I want to be at that party. I want to be right in the middle of that party. So I wrote Kiki so that she so that I could be right in the middle of that party. And yeah, I'd been reading about it for ten years, so in some ways it was very straightforward for me to write Picasso in. I'd actually been reading about Picasso because his artistic work ethic is so phenomenal and he painted every day and nothing interrupted him. And, and so I would read his, read sort of um, biographies of, of him to try and work how he, work out how he did that so I could work out how I could live an artistic life. Um, but it meant that I just had a lot of material and it was fun. And it was fun to, to address some of the things that, that, can sometimes annoy me about reading history like he was not very nice to the women in his life so I could create a woman who could address that a little bit and maybe take advantage of that in the way that some of the women he was with couldn't take advantage of it so it was yeah it was super fun and it's it's a it's a super fun place to live in your imagination and it was it was a joy to go oh who else was there oh i mean david she was there with jules pashin who was her who was her lover oh okay okay i'm going to put that in i'll put that in and yeah it was great a lot of fun yes <laughs> Look, have you actually spent time in paris yourself very much time not very much time bit of time as a tourist um but not a not as much as as some, and I certainly don't speak any French. The but the Paris of nineteen twenties is very different to contemporary Paris. Yes. So I don't feel that I'm missing out a lot, except in the way that Paris is set out in terms of the the sounds and the smells of of Paris. But it was a hundred years ago, so that's okay. And there's a the Paris that I'm talking about is really a an Anglophone Paris is the Paris of the British and the Australians and the Americans rather than the Paris of working-class Parisians who'd just come back from the war. So there's a lot written about Montparnasse and Montmartre in the early part of the 20th century, and that's what I've been reading. Yes, yes. Mm. Possibly it also, as, as you've just alluded to, isn't exactly about 
the, the First and Second World War anymore. It's rather more about people who lived through that time. But that period, the, the World War One and World War Two, has become very popular with mystery novels. And I wondered if you had any feeling for why that does appeal to readers now. Well, I can only speak from my experience as a reader, which I find uh, I find a war and that interwar period sort of intellectually fascinating. There was so much change, so much political change and social change and cultural change, and we're still living the effects of those changes as well. We're still living the effects of, say, the Russian Revolution. We're still living the effects of of what happened in World War Two. That it's it's fascinating to go back and read about it and how individuals in that time might have made a decision to do one thing or not or another to join the resistance or to join the communist party or to become a nurse in world war one or to become an artist and what motivated those decisions and how their small story related to the larger one i'm very interested in that idea yeah um but also things like it's a hundred years since the end of World War One, so there's a lot uh, in the news and there's a lot sort of online about looking back a century later. And so then that just that just keeps going, I guess. In terms of World War Two, I think it's been fascinating since it began, and I don't think it's ever gone out of popularity, if you know what I mean. And so people have just then extended that back and extended it back to World War One. Yes, I, I spoke to um, a Canadian writer, M.K. Todd, who does mm. World War One mysteries, and, and she had the feeling that Commonwealth uh, readers and writers had a greater fascination for World War One because World War One was so much more significant for us, whereas the Americans very much were fixated on World War Two. H- have you found that in terms of audience and readership? Well, this is my first book and it only came out a few months ago yeah, so I yeah. haven't quite I haven't had quite had uh time to understand that yeah um but also because mine said in 1920s the uh, America is very interested in the 1920s and especially the social and cultural changes of the 1920s and for women and that's when those fabulous detectives like Marlowe started to be written and started to came out that that confirmed the American mystery genre so I haven't experienced that myself but from uh, my historical research I would say then yes they're more interested in World War Two than World War One whereas as N.K. Todd said World War One and becomes a continuum with the interwar period and then World War Two it starts to become one period rather than discrete wars and discrete time sections so yeah it's rather shocking mm. to think that it is now a hundred years it's suddenly Oh, just uh, you don't realise it was quite that that long ago until you suddenly brought up short with that uh, that anniversary, that centenary. Mm. Yes, well, especially as just a few years later, the nineteen twenties, a lot of the literature and the art still feels so contemporary. Yes, still feels so uh, modern and boundary pushing in terms of modernism. But then you look at, um, like I would look at photos of World War One, and you see the technology was so much less than it is today just in the grainy photos or you hear arguments against women being able to vote in the British Parliament from 100 years ago and you think, whoa, that is a long time ago. So there's kind of this, for me, there's this kind of disconnect between what some people, what some sections of society were doing and then what other sections were doing. Yeah, so that, 
that sort of brings up one of your themes. You say that one of your obsessions is how to be a modern woman, and that's definitely one of the things that Kiki is exploring, isn't it? How to be a modern woman. Yes, yes. I wanted. To, well, I think it's a it's it's a very pressing issue still. And when yeah. with things like the Me Too movement coming up, the idea of what does it mean to be a woman in the world and what is femininity, if you can call it that, on a continuum between you know female sexuality and and female biology and with transgender identity, all of these ideas of what it means to be a woman are being debated still. And this was a time, it had come up through the 19th century, but it was exploded in World War I with women doing men's jobs, in quotation marks. They were on the front line, they were driving ambulances, they were bus conductors and, and postmen at home and doing all these things. And then in the 1920s, both with the you know, the sort of social movement of the flappers going out wearing makeup and being unchaperoned. And then the other sort of cultural movement of women having to work because they were never going to be able to get married. The men weren't there. Yes. And all the changes that had to happen because of because of what the war did. So yeah, yeah, for me, Kiki can address our concerns now by being there at a beginning time, at a beginning time addressing what does it mean to be a woman, what does it mean to be unchaperoned and how do you deal with men who have very old-fashioned ideas? How do you create this life when there's no template? Yeah, it gives Mm. the book a remarkably contemporary feel and she feels like a woman that you could meet, you know, right right today. She hasn't got (laughs) any sense of of antiqueness about her at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've had a couple of people say that, that Kiki is their friend. They feel like they found a new friend in Kiki. So mm. maybe even a heroine, yes, yeah, role model. <laughs> yes. I think she has maybe too many cocktails with famous artists who are now dead to be a true role model. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> she's certainly a friend. Yes, there might be a little bit of, of over-medication with alcohol. That's right, yes. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if you believe in the idea of core story or whether you've quite done enough writing yourself yet to have discovered what your core story was or is. But uh, tell me a little bit, do you actually believe in that idea of a core story and do you have a sense of what your core story would be? Is it something to do with women's um, finding finding their role in life? Um, I would have said uh, writers have writerly obsessions yes so a reader a reader can stick with a writer because of their writerly obsessions uh, accord with what the reader is interested in in the world and it can be both in terms of form and style as well as content and I would have said some of my writerly obsessions are to do with the intersection of history memory and identity around war yes and so the those ideas I keep I keep coming back to that's what I looked at in my doctorate and what Kiki is looking at in a in an oblique but fun way and then other books and other short stories that I've written look at it in a more serious or tragic way that the way that history and memory identity uh, interact but particularly through narrative through the way that we structure narrative in order to come to terms with 
identity in order to structure memory and history to be able to create identity. And these are the ideas. I don't think they have an answer, which is why I can come back to them again and again and again and throw in a character like Kiki or throw in a, an old man in Soviet Russia or, or throw in a, a young woman who's been abducted you know, who runs away from an abduction or, or some of the other short stories that I've written. Yeah, yeah. Whether that comes out as a, as a core story, I'll, I'll have to wait and see. But they're certainly the ideas that I, I can't get rid of. Yeah, yeah. That segues really nicely into expanding our discussion a little bit away from the particular book to look at your wider career as a writer. And as you've referred to, you are also a poet, a reviewer, and an academic, and your doctoral dissertation was, quotes, on the silence in contemporary Australian war fiction with a basis in trauma therapy. Now, as soon as I read that, and it was after I'd read uh, the book, April in Paris, I realised that there is, well, I obviously already knew it, but I saw where the link was with Kiki's, because underneath all the gaiety, you do sense that there is, trauma still there did you find it fascinating to link all that up yes in a word yeah. I've read a uh, so trauma theory is a way of looking at particular types of narrative and particular especially contemporary narratives with the idea that there's a there's a traumatic event and this shapes the way the narrative is and I'd read a lot of the theory and then I read a lot of the books that seem to talk to the theory uh, explicitly but I Obviously, a lot of them are quite dark yes. and quite tragic yeah. and it's beautifully written but also sad and I was pregnant and then I was breastfeeding and I, I needed to explore these ideas in a way that didn't make me quite so sad, Yeah, that wasn't quite so tragic and to to use um, uh, for April in Paris, 1921, to use some of the previous like generation's way of coping with war, which was through humour. And to try and use some of that to talk about these, uh, to talk about these things. So yeah, there's this there's this underlying mm, sadness, trauma, difficulty. World War One. A lot of World War One books are about loss, about coping with unimaginable, sudden and destructive loss. Uh, and so then, how to to weave some of that into a, a narrative, a narrative that also wasn't dark yes it was, yeah it was quite a it was quite a fun challenge shall we say and the silence that's referred to is that a silence where they found it very difficult to actually address some they didn't actually talk about it directly yeah so silences in war fiction it, it, it's an idea that relates to a lot of trauma theory it's sort of the unsayable yes yeah I guess so. Something that you would know, but you you cannot articulate, and it can be any. The way that I looked at it, it was anything from a from a missing person or a death to a traumatic event or a, like a pregnant pause, a pregnant silence. But also the way that professional writers would use this this silence, use this ultimate incommunicable moment to give the narrative momentum so that we as a reader can understand that this is, there's an incredibly powerful force that's pushing these characters along that can't be said and we have to we have to understand what what is inside this force what propels this force 
through the structure of the narrative and through the language. Sure, sure. Mm. Yeah, I think you actually do that very well with Kiki. Look, Ah, perhaps just expanding a little bit further, is there one thing you've done in your career overall, more than any other, that's helped you progress? Uh, Probably my doctorate. It's a a big thing. It's a big one thing. But um, my master's, my master's led into my doctorate, but having the the three years and I got a scholarship as well, which was almost enough to live on so I could really sit down and concentrate and read and write and read and write and talk to other people who were similarly uh, obsessed with reading and writing and these ideas and I, I did it at the Western Sydney University. Yes. And my, my supervisor, uh, Professor Ivor Indick, is amazing and he runs a publishing company and all my peers are published authors and published poets and so I was in this incredibly um just a great environment of people giving me some of the best feedback that I could ever hope to have yeah and I'm still sort of bringing up those lessons sort of bringing up even five or six years later my supervisor would have said something I'm like oh that's that's what he means I finally I finally understand and I just yeah, that's probably the one thing and it changed the way I thought about my writing. It wasn't a hobby or something that I did for myself alone. It was a it was a professional thing and a public thing. Yeah. And I could work on it like work rather than like play. So yeah, that changed my life. Yes, it sounds like it was a very successful incubator. Mm. It was. If you were going to do a magical mystery literary tour of Kiki Buttons Paris. Where would you recommend people go? Can you still find the places that, some of them anyway, that Kiki lived and and, uh, danced in? Oh, how fun. What a fun thing to think about. (laughs) Uh, You can find some, uh, but but not a lot because places like Montparnasse were very poor, which means a lot of the places were sort of falling down. Um, And then they had to be rebuilt. So... I was actually in Paris this April and I did my own little tour. Ah. And I, I, first of all, I went to Montparnasse and I just walked around the streets. I had a coffee at the, at the Rotonde Cafe and I had a coffee at the Dome Cafe and walked around all of those streets and the cemetery. And so that would be the first place I would say to go. Secondly, I would say to walk up to the Seine because Kiki does a lot of walking and walk through the gardens and go to the Ritz at Place Vendôme. And I had a very delicious and very expensive cocktail at Bar Hemingway. <laughs> um, so to do that, as though you were there with Bertie, Kiki and Bertie, and to go and have a, a, a cocktail at the Ritz. And then just to walk along and find a little cafe and have a coffee and a croissant and a baguette and listen to the sounds of Paris and listen to the way that people speak French around you and what it sounds like. And if the cafe is tiny and it's full of old men playing chess, even better. (laughs) A tiny little local place that nobody knows about. It's away from all of the tourist places. That would... uh, that's what I would say to do. Yes. That would take a day. Yes, that's that would take wonderful. a day, but you could do it. Uh, there are other great places to go, like um, the Picasso Museum, which I went to, which is nowhere that Picasso actually lived, but 
has a lot of his work that was related to Paris and it's sort of round this little lane and now another little lane in a former school and as you look out, you can look out onto all of these sort of apartments that are still in the middle of the city and I think that's one of the things that Kiki loves and that I love about Paris through Kiki is that is that sort of people, there's not a separation between where you work and where you live. It's all together. So even in the centre of town you can find the local cafe because people are living four, five, six floors above it in little apartments. Yeah. And so just wandering around and finding little alleyways and finding little like 18th century confectionery stops that are still there. Yes. You know, it's like you discover your own Paris every time yes, that, you go. Yeah. And so... I, as I'm writing these books, I want Kiki to discover a new Paris every time. Yes, yeah. Look, turning to Tessa as reader, we called this series The Joys of Binge Reading. Are you a binge reader and have you in the past binge read authors? And if so, who do you favour most? I'm definitely a binge reader, but it's not only authors but also themes, shall we say. Yeah. So recently in terms of authors, there's a few that I've gone through um, and sometimes there's very particular reasons so I was I was um, up about five or six times a night a couple of years ago when my daughter was teething and she wouldn't sleep so I read all of Harry Potter bang I read five or seven <laughs> in a month only between 10 p.m and 5 a.m <laughs> so that was a type of binge reading that absolutely saved my life and I thank JK Rowling for being such a brilliant plotter and being able to see I think it was the, maybe the only book that I could have read that I would rather have finished the chapter than go back to bed and I thought well that's that's some seriously good suspense writing um and so I've gone through her Robert Galbraith uh books as well and the fourth one's just come out the Strike and Ellicott novels yes so yeah so they're great um I've also been binge reading things like uh, Maisie Dobbs. Oh yes, because these are these are in the period, so that it's a fun binge reading because I can also pretend it's work. Yeah. So binge reading Maisie Dobbs, written by Jacqueline Winspear, and binge reading Solari Gentile's Roland Sinclair series. Oh yes, yeah. So that's a yeah. She's an Australian author. Yes, mm. yeah. But otherwise, I I tend to it tends to be that there's a there's a period or an idea that I get stuck on and I just want to read as much about that as possible. So obviously one period that I've been stuck on for a very long time is Paris, women in Paris, women in Paris between the wars. So I've read um, a book by Vincent Cronin called City of Light, which is nonfiction, and I've read another nonfiction called Les Parisiennes by Anne Seber about Parisian women during occupation of World War II and then just on and on and more and more. Another one by Dan Frank called Bohemian Paris, I think. Um, and now I'm, so that's one sort of binge reading obsession that I've gone, I'm going through. And then there's another one that's just started up, which is uh, Russian literature of the early 20th century. So I'm currently reading Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak and I've got Bulgakov's The White Guard next to next to me and Vasily Grossman and Boris Akunin and all these other ones like that. So I kind of have two types of binge reading, both a character and a, from, a, from an author as well as ideas. Oh, and I should also mention 
the one that obviously inspired Kiki first, which is Kerry Greenwood's Fryany Fisher novels. Oh, yes. Which yes. is one of the reasons I started to write Kiki was because I'd read them all and I'd seen the television show so many times and there was just there just wasn't any more Fryany. And so I'm like, you have to write your own Fryany, Tessa, if you want more. <laughs> that's lovely. So I did. Yeah, that's fantastic. Look, we're starting to run out of time. So just mm. circling around from the beginning where you began, if you were starting out all over again, is there anything you would change? You're probably early enough in your career that you're still very much involved in, in how it's going. But is there anything even at this point that you'd look back on and think, I wish I had done that rather than that? I wish I had started earlier. Oh, really? That's probably the only thing I would say because to change things is is to regret what you've done but this kind of life can is so serendipitous and you never know if you're going to be published at 20 or 60 and yeah. what's going to happen yeah. and are people going to like your books when they're published or not until you're dead you never really know you just have to keep going yes but I I wish I'd 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 had more belief in my uh, storytelling ability when I was younger I ignored signs like for my you know, final year of high school, I did drama, obviously, because yes. I wanted to be an actress. Um, I couldn't possibly decide what monologue to pick from Shakespeare or Chekhov, so I wrote my own. It seemed easier for me to write my own than to choose something from Shakespeare. And I, it's not, it wasn't until I'm like 30 that I'm like, look, you've been writing, you've been writing for decades, but I had no yeah, I couldn't see it. Yeah, I had no yeah. faith in my ability to do that. And it's like I wish I'd seen that earlier and and started some of the early training where you have to just write so much bad work in order to get to something to get to an understanding of how yeah. of how yeah. writing works. Yes. Yeah, that would be the only thing I would say. Yeah, and what is next for Tessa, the writer? Uh, two things. I'm writing the second book of Kiki Button. So she's still in Paris, but she has a lot to do with uh, exiled Romanovs from the Russian Revolution, uh, taxi-driving Russian princes and British princes and all the things that they get up to. Uh, and I'm also writing a book set in World War One with someone that's like Kiki's mad doppelganger and looking at, at the final year of that war. Goodness, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, an idea, and those, as I mentioned before, those ideas of of loss and redemption from loss. So this hmm. is Fox, is it? Is, is this a kind of development on the Fox character in, in April? Uh, no, 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 Fox is, Fox is just, just for that series. Yeah, yeah. No, initially when I thought of um, Kiki, she wasn't Kiki. She was a, a different kind of person altogether and it was a book set in World War One that was also funny and a romance and a tragedy and a series and a this and a that. It was The idea was just far too big. It didn't fit into one yeah. book. Yes. So I split it in two. One was the, the series writing romance that's also humorous and that became Kiki and the other that looked at World War One and ideas of loss and more, more, you know, those ideas of history and identity and memory. And I was writing both simultaneously and then it got to a point where Kiki was just working so much better. So I finished that. Yes. And that's been published. Yes. Yeah. And now I'm also continuing on with the other half of the original Kiki book. Yes. Which is the World War One book. Hmm. And when are you hoping Kiki 2 will be out? Ah, uh, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know. Uh, hopefully next year. Yes. Fingers crossed. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't want people to forget about her in the meantime. No. But we'll have to see. That's right. We'll have to see. Yeah. There, are too many, there are too many people making decisions on that yes. for me to be able to say. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Look, our time really has run out now, and I'm sorry about that because it's been fascinating. But coming to an end, where can readers find you online? And do you like to interact with your readers? I very much like to interact with my readers. People can message me anytime. Uh, uh, I have a website, tessalani.com. I'm on Twitter and my handle is Tessa Wynn, W-Y-N-N. And Tessa Wynn is also one of my Instagram accounts. And I have another Instagram account just for Kiki called Miss Kiki Button, where you can find me as well. And there will be coming a Facebook author page where you'll also be able to find me. And you can interact with me on any of those platforms. I'd love to hear from you. That's lovely, Tessa. Look, thank you so much. It's It's been fabulous talking and you really have made that period of Paris in the 20s come alive in your book. So we're looking forward to the next one. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.